When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt hey, Jr., Kirk Herbstreet so is on the phone. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's Thursday, February 4th, 2021, people. Hope everyone is having a great week. And I have a fun but different show for you today. So very brief rundown. What we'll do, we'll open with the topics of the night Wednesday, mostly college hoops. We'll talk about the fact that Villanova-Houston lost. I don't think it's a big deal. I do think it does, though, give me some more respect for Gonzaga and Baylor and what they're doing across college basketball. I'm starting to see some parallels to the college football season where we expected some craziness, and instead we ended up with Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State in the national championship game. We'll then actually talk a little bit about Houston because I have some interesting information. We know Gonzaga was attempting to schedule a game for this week, and I believe that Houston had the opportunity to play them. I know for a fact I will give you some good information on that. Houston essentially ducking Gonzaga. We'll talk about that. Also talk about an interesting night for the Kentucky Wildcats. We're not going to break down the game, but John Calipari essentially calling out his star freshman Terrence Clark, who's been out for five weeks. Calipari tried to run the comments back, but uh, if you listened, you could tell that Calipari is not happy about the circumstance with Terrence Clark. Then what we'll do is we will throw to a very interesting interview that I think you'll like, okay? So Matt Doherty is the former head coach at the University of North Carolina. For people who do not know, he was the coach there before Roy Williams. And after three years, he got fired. Well, he joins the Aaron Torres podcast today for what is a long form, but a very fun interview that I think you'll enjoy. Um, We talk a lot of fun stuff, right? We talk about playing for Dean Smith. We talk about playing with Michael Jordan. He has some great Michael Jordan stories that I think you'll enjoy. But we also talk about getting fired. We talk about the lows of him not wanting to get out of bed after he got fired at North Carolina, depression, the things that I don't think that we think about with with sports and and specifically coaches and tough guy, college guy, you know, and and it's a really fun, uh, deep interview that I think you'll enjoy. We're doing the interview today, by the way, because North Carolina's playing Duke on Saturday, so we'll end the show. I will come back on the back end, preview the big games this weekend, including Duke, Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, USC, UCLA, which is huge. And oh, by the way, how about uh, on top of all that, on top of all that, how about uh, the Super Bowl? We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, But yeah, before we get to started, I want to remind everybody, as I always do, 
Make sure you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres podcast, iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. You can subscribe on any of those platforms. Make sure to rate and review the show. And find me on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. The YouTube channel is blowing up. Uh, so find me on YouTube. There will be some other segments there. For example, Alabama putting together maybe a historically great recruiting class in football. Just not going to have time to talk about it on today's podcast. So that's the type of thing that will make the YouTube channel. If you're a Bama fan, I know we got some that listen. Go ahead and find it over there on YouTube on Thursday. But with that said, people, no more time to waste. Let's get into the topics of the day. And look, it's like I said. Big day in college basketball, big night in college basketball, but I don't know that there's some major, major, major takeaway, right? This is what happens in a basketball season where you play 30 games over the course of two months. You just have weird nights where crazy stuff happens, and that uh, Wednesday night was one of them. Villanova, number three ranked team in the country. They essentially had not lost since the first week of the season. They fall to St. John's. Houston lost to East Carolina. Creighton, who a week ago I thought was a Final Four team, they are reeling and heading in the wrong direction. They lose to Georgetown. Florida, by the way, falling at home to South Carolina. How about Mike White? I finally give him some credit on the last episode. Eddie falls apart, loses at home to a South Carolina team that was three and six. But like I said, you know, I don't know that there's any major marquee takeaway that I need to have and hot take that I want to throw out there. This is what happens in college basketball. If you watch the games, Villanova, a very good three-point shooting team, finished the game shooting 26% from three. St. John's, on the other hand, hit 42%. You take a few Villanova misses, you turn them into makes, you take a few Villanova or St. John's makes, you turn them into misses, all of a sudden Villanova has a win and it's not a story. Houston, kind of the same deal. If you haven't watched Houston basketball this year, and if you haven't, I don't blame you. I'm going to tell you why they missed a golden opportunity to get a marquee game momentarily. But if you haven't watched Houston, they're a big, physical, tough team. But if you don't let them bully you, they are beatable. Uh, East Carolina was not intimidated by them. The rebounding margin, which Houston dominates the boards, was even. And East Carolina didn't turn over the ball. That's the blueprint to beat Houston. So when I look at those games, there's nothing like, oh my God, I have to talk about Villanova. No. Same with Houston. This is college basketball. This is how it works. My only two kind of thoughts coming out of this game, first of all, it makes me appreciate Gonzaga and Baylor that much more. And, you know, listen, I've spent a ton of time talking about those two programs. They are the elite two programs in college basketball. But seeing a Villanova have an off night, seeing a Houston have an off night, seeing a Creighton have an off night, it makes me realize that we are now four and a half months into the season and or maybe three and a half months but still Gonzaga and Baylor have not had a single off night since the season started a few weeks a few months ago you look at Baylor I talked about it on Tuesday's show they have been unbelievable every single night they have beaten every opponent that they've played by eight plus points that is an incredible mark this far in the season especially when you consider how good the Big 12 is when you think about the fact that they have played at Texas at Texas Tech they've played Kansas at home they are consistently every single night destroying teams it's the same with Gonzaga Every game Gonzaga has played has been a win by 11 or more points, except for the West Virginia win when Jalen Suggs got hurt and missed most of the game. And it's not just the WCC, by the way. 
It's the fact that they beat the Big Ten champ, the Big Ten preseason favorite uh, in uh, Iowa, excuse me, by 11 points. It's the fact that they beat Kansas by 12. It's the fact that they beat Virginia by 25 points. And so, you know, when I look at this college basketball season, one, seeing a Villanova, Creighton, Houston fall on any given night, one, first of all, it just makes me appreciate Gonzaga and Baylor, what they're doing night in and night out. I think it's also making me think a lot about the college football season. And, and I think there's a parallel here because when I was watching, uh, you know, college football throughout the start of the season, remember, if you can go back to September August when the college football season started what was the one thing that we all thought we all thought oh this is gonna be a crazy season a lot of upsets you never know what you're gonna get week to week half of Bama's team is gonna be out with COVID against uh, Kentucky or against Tennessee we're gonna get upsets it's gonna be crazy instead the exact opposite happened the teams and programs that one took things seriously two had a good program in place, had good plans in place, those were the ones that had the most success, right? Think about it. Alabama, Nick Saban goes out. Guess what happens? Steve Sarkeesian immediately knows he's taking over as head coach. Uh, Nick Saban is still coaching practice from home. They have a plan in place, and they don't miss a beat. It's the same with Ohio State. They go on the road without Ryan Day. They know exactly what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to handle things. They take care of business. Clemson survived without Trevor Lawrence. They did lose to Notre Dame, but there were a couple other games where he couldn't play, where he was limited, where different guys were out. And the teams that have the good infrastructure in place, that have the good plan in place, uh, the guys that that really want to be there, that really appreciate the season, uh, they were the ones that had success. And so I think we're starting to see that in college basketball. Baylor and Gonzaga have a plan in place. If this guy's out, the next guy's got to step up. If this guy can't play, the next guy's got to step up. If this coach isn't available, the next guy's got to step up. And I look at what is going on across college basketball, and I think you're starting to see the exact opposite at other places. We saw Kentucky on Wednesday night against Missouri. I'm not saying they quit, which we'll talk about that game in a minute. We'll talk about Terrence Clark. But I, I think you know they fell down and they just kind of gave up. I think you're seeing it at Tennessee, where the team isn't as focused and locked in as we expected. Now, they're a veteran team, but they're dealing with adversity, and when you deal with everything that you're dealing with away from basketball on top of what is going on in basketball, you're starting to see them kind of fade into the background. I'll tell you this, Creighton right now, kind of the same deal. Bent together every day. They really haven't had a pause, as best as I understand it, since the start of the season. Well, the season itself is starting to grind them down. One loss is turning into two, turning into three. And I think we're seeing the same thing in college basketball that, we're see, that we saw in college football. Not to say that Tennessee has quit on the season. Not to say that Kentucky has quit on the season. Not to say that Kansas or Creighton has quit on the season. But what I think you're seeing is the teams that it really matters to. One, they have a good structure in place. And two, uh, they are just fighting like heck to make sure this season gets played. I thought it was interesting after Alabama won the national championship uh, in, 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 in football, Nick Saban said this was maybe the closest group that we've ever had, even though they spent the least amount of time together because they had so much to overcome, so much adversity to overcome, and they could not have done that if they were not fully locked in and fully focused on the task at hand. I think we're seeing it with Gonzaga. I think we're seeing it with Baylor. It makes me appreciate them, all while other teams, again, the Kansases, the Creightons, the Tennessees, the Kentuckys, the Dukes, the North Carolinas, I think they're starting to fade into the background. Only other takeaway, by the way, from, two, from Wednesday night, again, Villanova and Houston losing. 
I mentioned Gonzaga. And it feels like a little bit of karma for those teams. I don't want to say ducking Gonzaga this week, but they kind of ducked Gonzaga this week. Let me explain what's going on. So, so I think it became kind of a story in college basketball. But over the last couple days, Gonzaga does not have a game on Saturday, okay? They are not playing on Saturday. And they are trying like heck to schedule games. And you can criticize Gonzaga for whatever you want. But Mark Few has largely taken up an anytime, anywhere, we'll play anybody mentality when it comes to this college basketball season. And we saw it in the preseason. They played Iowa on a neutral. They played, uh, they were scheduled to play Baylor. They were scheduled to play Tennessee. They did play West Virginia. They did play Virginia. And some of those games came together on short notice. West Virginia came together on about two or three days notice when Tennessee had to opt out of the Jimmy V Classic. Virginia came together on short notice about a week or two during COVID. And I know for a fact that Gonzaga worked the phones like crazy to try to get a marquee game for this weekend because they knew they weren't going to play. Now, I will say Villanova, in their defense, they were not scheduled to play this weekend because one of their games got canceled because of COVID. I don't know if Villanova was was willing to play Gonzaga. What I do know is that largely I believe what happened was when Villanova's game got canceled, the Big East decided, you know what? It might be cool to have a Villanova-Gonzaga game, but we need to get some of these games that, that were originally scheduled, we need to get them rescheduled. And so instead, Villanova ends up playing Georgetown on Super Bowl Sunday, and I think that was largely a byproduct of the league. I don't know how far any conversation with Villanova got with Gonzaga about playing a potential game. But what I can tell you is this. Houston had the opportunity to play Gonzaga this weekend. I can tell you that with big facts. I did some Big J journalism reporting over the course of the last couple days, talking to some people across college basketball. I will also say credit to Matt Norlander from CBS who had this, this story first. But what I can definitively tell you, Houston and Gonzaga had major talks about playing a game on Saturday on a neutral court. I believe Salt Lake City was where Matt Norlander reported it was going to happen. And the game was good to go. And at the last second, Houston pulled out. Don't know every detail. Don't know what was going on. But Gonzaga was ready to get on a plane and fly to Salt Lake City on short notice and play Houston. And Houston was the one that bailed. So shout out to Houston. Because not only did you bail on the most marquee game that you would have played maybe since the 80s. but on Well, maybe since at least you, you played Kentucky in the Sweet 16 a few years ago. But. You bailed on a game that, that could have given you national recognition, and then you follow it up by losing to East Carolina. And to me, that was the most disappointing part, right? Like, well, like, like Houston has their version of the story. Gonzaga has their side. All I know is that Gonzaga was ready to go, and at the last second, Houston bailed. Not only did they bail, they decided to, to schedule some school called Our Lady of the Lake. I'm not making this up. Houston could have played Gonzaga. Instead, we'll play something called Our Lady of the Lake, on Saturday instead they lose to East Carolina and I'll tell you this I am so disappointed from Houston's perspective and let me tell you why it is because of the fact that this would have as I said a minute ago been the single most marquee thing that Houston basketball could have done for their program for their conference for the AAC for their players was to play Gonzaga bottom line is look Here's the truth about college basketball, and I say this as somebody who loves college basketball, who talks college basketball essentially every single episode of this podcast. I am telling you, 
There are not a lot of people that on a random Tuesday or Wednesday night are choosing to tune in to Houston basketball games. You have your own team that you want to watch. You have other teams that you want to watch. You have teams in your conference that you want to watch. And even some other teams that you might not normally watch, there's at least a reason to watch them, right? You might not normally tune into a Gonzaga game, but Gonzaga's going for history with their, and they're undefeated. And at the very least, Gonzaga's fun to watch. They play fast. They shoot a lot of threes. They have two or three lottery picks on that roster, certainly three or four first-round caliber players on that roster. Like, Gonzaga's fun to watch. Baylor, even if they're, a bad, if they're playing a bad opponent, is fun to watch. But Houston? Houston plays slow. They play boring. They play physical. They don't play any marquee opponents. Their conference stinks. And I don't think anybody is going to watch a single Houston game until we get closer to the NCAA tournament, probably the AAC championship game. And that's only if they play a Memphis, if they play somebody worth paying attention to. This was Houston's chance to get on the national radar. And I know if I have any Houston fans, you're going to say, oh, my school wanted to play, but they I'm telling you, Houston had the chance and they passed it up. They'd rather play a D2 team. They'd rather get the automatic win. They'd rather gear up for the second half of conference play. And I am telling you, it would have been the best thing that Houston basketball could have done, not only for their brand and their name recognition, but I'll take it a step further. It would have been great for their seeding. You win that game, all of a sudden, you're, you're potentially looking at a, a number one seed in the NCAA tournament because you have a win over Gonzaga, which would have been the single best win in college basketball. Instead, not only are you not going to play Gonzaga, but on top of that, you take a loss to, to East Carolina. And so instead, in a one-day period, you went from potentially uh, having an opportunity to play yourself onto the one-seed line to now you might end up as a three-seed because you just lost a really bad quad-two, quad-three game to East Carolina. So shout-out to Houston who could have played Gonzaga, who would have had nothing to lose, who would have looked good by playing Gonzaga, and instead the exact opposite happens. They decide to not play that game, and now they look really bad. All right, last little topic before we get to Matt Doherty, and that is what happened uh, Wednesday night in Columbia, Missouri, and that is where Kentucky, they lost again. You probably saw it, you probably heard about it, but if you didn't, it was essentially every single Kentucky game that has played, been played the entire season. Kentucky starts slow. They don't play well. They miss open threes. They fall down at halftime. Then second half comes. They make a run. They get a couple few stops. Davion Mintz hits a few threes. They get within one play. About two or three times they just needed one play to really turn the momentum and potentially take the lead. And instead the exact opposite happens. Need to get a defensive stop, can't get a defensive stop. Need to make a wide-open jump shot, can't make a wide-open jump shot. Commit a dumb foul, and they end up losing to Missouri. But that's not really why I'm talking about Kentucky, because I made you guys a promise. I said I don't talk about bad teams. I don't do segments on Washington State on this podcast. I don't do segments on Georgia basketball. I don't do segments on South Carolina football, because they stink. And Kentucky stinks right now. But the reason I am talking about them is because... John Calipari had some interesting comments about his five-star McDonald's All-American freshman, Terrence Clark, following the game. And if you don't know much about the situation, let me kind of give you a quick background. Terrence Clark came to Kentucky as arguably the highest-rated recruit or the most hyped recruit that they had in this year's recruiting class. B.J. Boston was ranked higher in some recruiting rankings, but many believe that Terrence Clark was actually the better NBA prospect. 6'7", 6'8", can handle the ball, can distribute, can hit open threes. And yeah, like so much of Kentucky's team, did not go well to start the season. 
And right around Christmas time, he went down with an ankle injury. And he was seen in a walking boot and all that kind of stuff. But over the last two, three, four weeks, everyone's kind of started to wonder, what's going on with, with this ankle with Terrence Clark? How bad is it? But he has not played since around Christmas. So finally, John Calipari, appearing to be at wit's end, is asked about it. And he says this following the game. He says, after five weeks, you're still limping. And there's nothing wrong. There's no MRI. There's nothing there. But players know their pain and what their pain threshold is. So if he's limping around, I'm not going to play him. Now, on the surface, I'm just going to flat out say it. It did not sound good. It kind of sounded like John Calipari does not believe that Terrence Clark is actually hurt. It is worth noting that after the game, he tampered back the, the commentary on Twitter, took to Twitter, and this is what he said following the game. He said, Terrence Clark has been in pain. I have never asked a player to play that is injured, and I never will. You are just try we are just trying to figure it out with the approval of our medical staff. Can he play through this or not? And he might not be able to, and that's okay. So first of all, look, Calipari did what he had to do. He made a comment that could be perceived a certain way, that could be perceived as him calling out his player, that could be perceived as him questioning his player, and Calipari did the right thing. He tempered it back. He said, I didn't it, what you thought I said was not how it actually what I actually meant. And he has to do that, and he should protect his players. We talked about it with Jerry Stackhouse's comments a few weeks ago. You don't call your players out publicly. But I will tell you, so I give credit to Calipari for that, but I will tell you there are plenty of people in basketball that are kind of questioning, is this Terrence Clark ankle injury really serious or is he milking it because he's not playing well because he thought his draft stock was going to get hurt and he doesn't want to play? It's really interesting. I, a few weeks ago uh, for Kentucky Sports Radio, I actually did an article where I reached out to some people in the NBA, some people I know, people I trust, and I'll tell you, point blank, this was one of the big conversations that I had with NBA people. They were trying to get information from me, just like I was trying to get information from, him, from them. What do you know? What are you hearing? Is there anything that I need to know about? Um, because what they're, the NBA people are essentially saying is like, look, he has lottery-type talent but there were some question marks about him coming into college. And then on top of that, now we have this mysterious ankle injury. We can't get anything out of him. And is he really milking it because he believes that it's going to help his NBA draft stock by not playing? I would also say, on top of it, it's not just me that's wondering. It's not just NBA people that's wondering. Jeff Goodman put out a very cryptic tweet after the game with the quote from John Calipari. And Jeff Goodman said, Gotta wonder if an agent has been involved and told Terrence Clark to sit out the rest of this one. Uh, yeah, first of all, worst agent ever. Because if his advice is to help, is it that it's going to help your draft stock by not playing when you've been terrible all season long, uh, I'm just guessing that that's the worst agent ever. Because it's not going to help your draft stock. It's not going to make you more interesting in the eyes of the NBA. But I do think this is a conversation that's happening. NBA people are wondering, is he really hurt? Jeff Goodman flat out says, is an agent involved telling him to sit out? I would also say, just watching the games, I do find it very interesting. There's been a couple times that I've seen Terrence Clark jumping up and down, waving a towel, getting excited when a big play happens. People are starting to question it. I also found it interesting that for the first time that I'm aware of, John Calipari left Terrence Clark at home. Kind of said, look, we need you to get better. We need you to get right. We need you to be back on the court. I don't believe that it has happened so far this season, and I did find it very interesting 
that John Calipari made this decision. Never made it before. Has never asked him to stay home. But I do wonder if Calipari's starting to get at his wit's end here of like, look, we're losing games. The ship is sinking. It's not working out the way that we thought. But if you want to put yourself in position to be an NBA draft prospect, you got to get your butt in gear, man. You got to get your butt in gear and you got to get back out on the court and help this team win because if not, you're not doing yourself any favors. So I know Calipari tempered it back. I know he scaled back his commentary. I know all that stuff. I'm just telling you this is a very interesting story and it is going to be a continually developing story because whether John Calipari wants to say that he didn't mean what it sounded like he meant, John Calipari might not have meant it, but I am telling you there are plenty, plenty, plenty of people that have questions, the ones that I just raised, the ones that you've been thinking in your living room, is Terrence Clark really hurt? All right, I think that's it for this opening segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Um, You know, really fun interview with Matt Doherty coming up. And as I mentioned, I will be back on the back end. But in the meantime, uh, Matt Doherty's coming up. For those of you who are not familiar with his story, former UNC head coach, uh, former, uh, uh, you know, coach at a lot of different places, but it's just a really fun, interesting interview. He has a book coming out, but we talk about um, not just the fun basketball stuff, playing with Michael Jordan, all that stuff, but also the downside of being a marquee basketball coach. What does it mean, uh, you know, when you lose your job? What is it like, the mental health stuff? And so I do think you'll enjoy it. I will be back on the back end to preview UNC Duke, Kentucky, Tennessee, USC, UCLA, and of course the Super Bowl. But before that, I really think you'll enjoy this interview with Matt Doherty, former head coach, the University of North Carolina. All right, joining me via Zoom, very special guest, excited to have him on the show, former head coach in multiple sp- stops across the Division One basketball landscape, including North Carolina, Tar Heel set to play Duke this weekend, most recently is also the author of Rebound from Pain to Passion, Leadership Lessons Learned, which is available here in about a month or so. Coach Matt Doherty is joining me. Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Aaron. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for doing this. And I, and I want to talk about the book and I want to talk about it really in the context of your career. But I mentioned, I mean, it, you know, we, we do have our first Carolina Duke game coming up this weekend. Um, you know, it's, it's a surreal year across college basketball, but certainly in this rivalry where neither team, I think, is playing very well right now. I know Carolina's won a few games uh, prior to uh, losing on Tuesday night to Clemson, but I think both teams are kind of trying to figure things out. But just take us into that rivalry. For people who don't know, you're a former head coach at North Carolina. You played at North Carolina, which we'll get into. Uh, everybody knows it from the outside watching on TV. What is it like as a player, as a head coach, as a fan, as a North Carolina resident for those of us that aren't there in a week like this? Well, Aaron, uh, I appreciate that question. And, and I do touch on this rivalry uh, in, in the book, Rebound from Pain to Passion, because I was recruited by both schools. And I remember visiting Duke first. And when I landed in Raleigh-Durham Airport in 19... 19- 79, um, the airport was about as big as um, uh, uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium, uh, uh, not any bigger than the Dean Dome. Wow. And, and since then, that whole rot research triangle park area of, of North Carolina has exploded. Um, but um, 
I remember getting picked up by a Duke assistant coach. And as I was going to baggage claim, the Carolina assistant coach was there to pick up another recruit. Okay. And so a couple of things popped out in my mind. One, I'm not the only one, right? I'm not the only girl at the dance. And two, the schools must be really close if they're both, <laughs> if they're both picking up at the same airport. And then ironically, two weeks later, I'm visiting Carolina and I go to baggage claim with the Carolina assistant and the Duke assistant is there picking up another recruit. So fast forward, um, you know, the schools are only eight miles apart. Okay. It's eight miles apart and both schools recruit from the same talent pool. So you have people like me that visited both schools and chose one over the other. And it could be, you know, guys like, uh, I think Christian Leitner, Bobby Hurley, um, you know, Jerry Stackhouse, Grant Hill, Eric Montross, you can go down the line and, um, you know, that rivalry from starts at the recruiting and, and then goes to the court and then goes beyond the court. And so, um, you know, going over to, remember my first game as, as a coach at, at Duke, we had pregame meals on the road. We had pregame meal in Chapel Hill. We went back to the locker room, relaxed a little bit, then got on a bus and it was a 17 minute bus ride wow. to an away game at Duke. So close, but yet so far, like very similar, but yet very different. Public school, private school, larger school, smaller school, big gym, small gym. Um, and, you know, you roll up there and you walk out on the court and I jokingly say it's a big high school gym <laughs> and, you know, talk to the players about, hey, those fans can't come out on the court and block your shot. So, you know, uh, and then we won and then we're back home and less than 20 minutes. Um, yeah, it's pretty heated. It's a pretty heated rivalry. I think it's the best rivalry in sport because, you know, I'm a New York Yankee fan. You got the Yankees and the Red Sox. Well, they're, you know, three, four hour drive apart. People talk about Alabama football, Auburn football, Michigan, Ohio State. You know, they only play once a year. Um, people talk about Louisville, Kentucky and basketball. They only play once a year. Um, and uh, the fan bases are so, you know, in, in different. Here, it's a it's a national, has an, a national flavor. And um, uh, it's intense and it's been intense for years. Uh, and this is the first time since I think 1961 that neither team has been ranked in the top 25. Wow. It, it doesn't take away from the game. And I know people are still excited about it. Do you, do you get, do you, it, you know, sometimes you talk about like a Louisville, Kentucky rivalry or Alabama, Auburn, a lot of, maybe more so the college rivalries, but especially the ones that are in state that you feel it 365 days a year, you know, Kentucky fans will tell you it's, you, you're not excited about beating Louisville you're excited that you don't have to hear it from Louisville fans for the next 364 days until the next time you play 
because the schools are so close, but also because they're so different. And I think it's not a secret that, uh, especially from the Duke perspective, a lot of their fans and alums, or mostly their alums, don't necessarily stay in the area. Is it a 365-day-a-year deal where if you lose that last regular season game, you're hearing about it and you feel it all offseason? Or is it more those two, three Saturdays, whatever, a year where everything ratchets up? Well, I, I think you hear it year round, but uh, maybe to your point in a state like Alabama that doesn't have professional sports and isn't littered with high division one programs, you know, we still have NC state in the state. We still have Wake Forest in the state, uh, you know, to a lesser degree, UNC Charlotte, Davidson, uh, where, you know, the only league really big league in, in Alabama is the SEC and there's only two SEC schools there and there's no pro sports. You know, we have, we have the Panthers, we have, we have, uh, we have the Hornets, we have the Hurricanes in Raleigh in hockey. So you have a little bit more that of, of a diversion and there's more transplants here now than ever before because, you know, people have moved from the North, East and the Midwest to Raleigh and Charlotte. So, you, you know, you make a point there that uh, in states like Kentucky, where there's no pro sports and limited high major schools in Alabama, you know, that maybe, you know, that loss is more impactful to uh, the, the losing fan base than it is in a Carolina Duke rivalry, but um, it's still pretty intense. Yeah, I can, I can imagine, especially as you said, eight miles apart, 17 minutes on a bus. By the way, that's got to be the worst victory celebration ever. I mean, you don't get the, the 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 ride to the airport. You don't get the plane ride home. Do you guys say, hey, celebrate quick, guys. We're going to be home in about 10 minutes. We're on the next exit. Yeah. We, we almost wanted to tell the bus driver to detour to Charlotte, sure. you know, so it make the trip about a four-hour trip. <laughs> um, because you didn't get a chance to enjoy it, especially in basketball. I remember we beat them on a Thursday night. I think the game was at nine o'clock. We had to play Georgia Tech on Saturday at like noon or one. Oof. So I told the team, you know, enjoy it till midnight. But, you know, we're moving on. And sure. uh, uh, so that that's the challenge with basketball, the good and bad thing about basketball. You um you mentioned having played there. Um, what was it like? You know, we'll get to being a coach in a second, but I mean, what was it like the time you were there for people who don't have the historical context? I mean, I think a lot of people know you played with obviously Michael Jordan, but also James Worthy, number one overall pick in that era. Brad Doherty, number one overall pick, was in that era. Sam Perkins, 15-year NBA. I mean, what was it like? to be on campus, to be a Carolina basketball player, because it's always been great. I think it, every guy that's ever worn that uniform, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great thing to be a Carolina basketball player. But I would imagine that era, even it was maybe even a little bit extra special because of who you're playing with and all that kind of stuff. Well, uh, I'm a little biased. I think that the, um, you know, the early 80s were, were kind of, uh, or the 80s were kind of the golden era of the ACC. And that sounds very self-serving. No, I'm sure I get people it. In the 60s and the 70s could argue. But we're talking about, you know, Carolina wins the, we go to the Final Four in 81, and Virginia's in the Final Four in 81. 82, we win the national championship. 83, we're number one most of the year, and NC State wins the national championship. 84, we're number one the whole year, uh, and we stub our toe in the NCAA tournament. Then Duke 
uh, goes to the final four in 86. Um, and then uh, I think again in 88. So, you know, that was a he heck of a run for, you know, uh, for the ACC. 84, Virginia went to the final four. So it, it was a heck of a run for the conference, uh, you know, as a whole in terms of the team success. But you look at the individuals that played in the conference at that time, Ralph Sampson. Uh, we have not seen a player like Ralph Sampson since Ralph Sampson. And we may never see a player like that again. Maybe the most, maybe the most talented player ever to play college basketball. I'm not saying the best, but maybe the most talented. Seven foot four with guard skills. And we had James Worthy, Michael Jordan, Lenny Bias, Albert King, Buck Williams, um, you know, uh, Kenny Smith. Uh, you said Brad Doherty, um, you know, and, and Mark Price. Uh, there were so many good players in the ACC during that time. Um, and it made for just, you know, wonderful, wonderful games and wonderful ACC tournaments. By the way, that was like an eight, nine league team at that point, too. We're not talking about 14, 15 teams like now where there's, you know, no offense, but there's some some pretty bad bottom dwellers that we don't have to get into at this moment. Um, you know, look, I, I got to ask, you know, Michael, um, you know, he, one, he wrote the forward to your book, I believe. Um, yes, he and, did. Yeah. And, and obviously it's a, it's a great relationship. But listen, we're also coming off the summer of the last dance. And I think. You know, for a guy my age, I, I grew up watching Michael, but there's a lot of people that listen to my show that that do anything that are 22, 23, 19, 27, that didn't get to see him in his prime. And I think have a, a brand new appreciation for not just hearing guys talk about him on a day-to-day -day basis, but, you know, actually seeing him in person, seeing him, you know, uh, one at the college level, but two, obviously at the NBA, overcoming Carmelone, overcoming Charles Barkley, Clyde Drexler, Reggie Miller, et cetera. Again, he's clearly a friend. I know there's certain elements of your friendship that you want to keep private, but publicly, I mean, what, what can you tell us about your uh, playing days with him and all that stuff? Well, I think that, um, you know, people often ask, when did you realize he was going to be this good? And, and I think out of respect to the NBA and players like Larry Bird and, and Dr. J, I never projected him to be one of the best ever. But I remember the summer after his freshman year, we were playing pickup games and all the NBA players would come back and they still do. And it was a great opportunity for us all to bond and, and play and, and get better. And there was a, a great player whose jersey's in the rafters, Walter Davis, who was an all-pro NBA player with the Phoenix Suns. And Michael and Walter are going against each other. Michael is just giving it to him. And I remember in the stands saying to myself, oh, my God, Michael, like, show him some respect. Like, his jersey's in the rafters. And that's how... Like after that freshman year, I think his confidence level was through the roof. He started to even get a little stronger. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. Um, I remember um, he decides to go pro. I'm a senior. He's a junior. And he's meeting with Coach Smith. And we're all having our meetings with Coach Smith after the season. And um, 
kind of like a year-end review and prepping for the draft. And I'm sitting outside Coach Smith's old office in Carmichael, and his office was not what it was in the Smith Center. And Michael comes out, and uh, you know I'm waiting for Coach Smith to get ready for me. And Michael comes out, and he's standing in front of me. And we're all sneakerheads, right? That's nothing new. That that has not ha just blossomed in the last ten years. We all like sneakers. Just our options were very limited back then. It was like Chuck Taylors, you know, con leather cons, Adidas Pro models, and. Uh, That's about it. Sure. You know? And so Nike, Nike was just coming on, but they weren't a great shoe at that time. So Michael comes out and Michael liked wearing Adidas. He wore Adidas in practice, but we were a Converse school. So Michael comes out of the locker room and uh, I'm looking up at him. I'm sitting in the chair and I said, so Michael, what, like, what shoes are you going to wear? And he looks and you know how he kind of like, you know, kind of bobs his head and little, 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 you know, very confident. He says, uh, Nike's going to make me a shoe and they're going to call it the Air Jordan. And he, he pivoted and walked out the door <laughs> down the hallway. And I'm saying to myself, that cocky SOB. Oh my God. Fast forward a year later, I'm working on Wall Street, but I'm trying to stay in shape running down Broadway because I'm thinking maybe I'll go play Europe. I hated my job. I, I, I still miss basketball. So I'm running, jogging down Broadway. And all of a sudden I'm coming up on a bus stop and there's a bus that pulls up. And on the side of the bus in New York City, there's Michael Jordan spread eagle <laughs> on the side of the bus with the Air Jordan logo. Oh my God. And I said to myself, that son of a gun. Oh my God. That's yeah. unbelievable. That's yeah. unbelievable. Well, he certainly, you know, by by the time it's crazy because when you watch the documentary, I'm sure you watched. It. I mean, I love. Oh yeah, it. yeah, I rewatched it. I'll show you. Uh, I won't show you now, but because we're recording, but my phone, uh, my screensaver is Michael, and that's when I took it personal because you know that's my motivation every day when I get up. Uh, you know that uh, you know you got to kick yourself in the butt and get going here. Uh, but yeah, I just, I you know, I just think that that documentary was it was incredible. And I just think it, it gave everyone, including I, I lived through the Jordan era. I mean, I don't know him personally like you, but I, I saw all the games and, you know, it, it, even I forgot some of the stuff. So, so it was really awesome. You know, you mentioned coach Smith and he's somebody, another one that I think for a younger generation, you know, we think of even coach K who was his contemporary, who's still coaching college basketball. We think of, um, you know, the guys that are in it now, the guys that are still around, I mentioned to you beforehand, I'm a UConn alum, Jim Calhoun, Rick Pitino, uh, Billy Donovan from his Florida days. Uh, but there, there seems to be almost as time has gone on, almost like a mythical quality that has come with coach Smith. I mean, maybe I'm over-exaggerating. I don't know. I mean, you know, to, 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 to you, I know he was a friend, a father, a mentor figure, but for the younger audience, again, that wasn't around in the 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, that saw this guy on a night in, night out basis, describe his impact on Carolina basketball, the community, college basketball as a whole, whatever you think. Well, Aaron, I appreciate that. It's it's really hard to condense it in anything shorter than probably an hour <laughs> or two documentary uh, because he had such an impact on so many levels. He He was maybe one of the brightest men I've ever met. Um, he was very 
uh, emotionally intelligent. He was very socially aware. Um, he was helping integrate Chapel Hill as an assistant coach wow. at, at North Carolina. Yeah, as an assistant coach. He uh, and, and the pastor of his church uh, had an African-American student to lunch at a restaurant that was segregated. Uh, you know, very much uh, someone who supports civil rights. Um, uh, he was a staunch Democrat. Um, very smart, very shrewd, um, really knew how to motivate people and bring individuals together as a team, uh, created a, a culture that can only hope to be modeled today. Uh, and with that, uh, a loyalty amongst his players and coaches. You've probably heard the story of when he passed away that all the former players received a $200 check from him and his estate to take our families out to dinner on him. Wow. And uh, yeah, I've never heard of another coach that did that until I watched an ACC documentary on the 35 years of the ACC. Uh, and I think Everett Case did that for his players at NC State. And I'm assuming that's where Coach Smith got it from. But, uh, you know, I, I continually refer to him. I continually think about him. Um, I, I do a thought of the day on Twitter. I'm at, at Doherty Matt. And quite often I quote him. Um, you know, it's like a parent. You know, as you get older, uh, you, hear, you hear your parents in you. And you kind of like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm becoming my dad. Well, there are times I'm becoming Coach Smith, hopefully, because um, the things that he instilled in us were lifelong lessons. Yeah. And um, well, thank you for sharing that. It, it's, you know, like I said, I think that as time goes on, and yes, I have heard the story about sending everybody a check and some extra cash for them and their family. And yes, the time goes on. I, I just think that the mystique in many ways grows even, you know, as the further that he passes, you know, I want to get into your coaching career. And again, you touch on so much of this in your book, which again is called rebound from pain to passion leadership lessons learned. And we're going to talk about really the highs and lows of, of your career, why you decided to write this book, all that stuff. Um, but I, I was doing some homework and I know you've told this story a few times as you kind of promote the book and talk about your career, but for people who don't know, you were an assistant coach under Roy Williams for a few years at, at Kansas. You get the Notre Dame coaching job. And one year later, Bill Guthridge, who replaced Dean Smith, stepped away. And so for people who don't know Coach Guthridge, his longtime assistant, um, you know, he stayed for, correct me if I'm wrong, Coach, but two, three years somewhere in that vein. And then kind of abruptly kind of decided, okay, you know, my time is up. I want to pass it on. But my understanding is, um, you know, you were, you did not necessarily expect to be a candidate. And even when you were offered the job, when coach Guthridge left, you know, you struggled to, to actually take the job, even though I'm sure it was largely a dream job. Yeah. Well, it certainly is a dream job. I remember, uh, uh you know, everyone, and I, I think 
you know, there was probably some agreement that Coach Williams would take the job because it was a weird time for Coach Guthridge to resign. It was, it was the end of June. You know, most coaches resign, you know, March, April. And um, so I, I imagine there was some expectation on Coach Smith's side that Coach Williams would take the job. And Coach Williams didn't because he had good players coming back. I mean, those are team players I recruited. I was at, I was with coach Williams for seven years and he went to two final fours back to back with that group um, in that year uh, that I was at Notre Dame. And then the next year, uh, if that's right, maybe, maybe uh, yeah, th- yeah, that's correct. So um, you know, and, and the Carolina job was going to be a little bit of a rebuilding job and Kansas, you know, name the four best coaching jobs in basketball in college. And it would probably be, uh, let's say in no uncertain order, Kentucky, Carolina, Duke, and, um, you know, Kansas, and maybe you'd throw Indiana in there. Maybe you, well, you talk about the blue bloods. You're the oh, one yeah. that talks. We'll get into, about I got, I got to get you on the record on that one after, but we'll, we'll get to that yeah, later. Yeah. So. so, you know, you know, I and know. you believe in it. So, you know, you, are you going to leave Kansas for North Carolina, especially when you have Final Four talent? Uh, and North Carolina was trending this way in the talent pool, and Kansas was, you know, so did it make sense? So he said no. And Coach Smith, you know, I called Coach Smith. I was on vacation in late June, and I called Coach Smith, and I said, hey, you know, assuming Roy takes North Carolina, what should I do if Kansas calls? Because I was preparing for Kansas call. And he said, it's not a done deal with Roy yet. You're on the short list. And I was like, I mean, a year, 14, 15 months prior, I was an assistant coach. And now I'm on the short list at North Carolina. And I'm like, well, that's a no-brainer. That was my immediate response. So we hang up. And then about 10 days later, I'm in Coach Smith's office, and we're talking about the job. And he said, well, what do you think? Can you take the job? I said, Coach, I got I to talk to my wife. And typical Coach Smith, he said, well, just a couple of weeks ago, you said it was a no-brainer, you know? And uh, I said, well, a couple of weeks ago, I didn't realize I was really a candidate. So, <laughs> sure. um, and, and I could have stayed at Notre Dame, but the thing that pushed me over the edge was Michael Jordan called, and I'm sure Coach Smith who's a master at motivation, knew what hot button to push. And Michael said, if you don't take this job, Coach Smith will probably offer it to go outside the family and offer it to Rick Majerus. And I said, I I can't have Rick Majerus coaching my team. I can't have it. I can't have somebody outside that, no. So I said, "I I gotta take it. And that's what happened. Let me ask a dumb question. Why do you think, and, and it's not just a North Carolina thing, but we always hear about, you know, Michigan football with Jim Harbaugh, a Michigan man, um, you know, various jobs. You know, I think it's it's kind of widely re- regarded or believed that when Coach K leaves uh, Duke, it'll be a Duke man that takes the job. Why, why do you deem that important? And the reason I ask is because I was a little young when you accepted that job, but I do remember the importance that every media, you know, I'm a sports nut, so I'd be sitting there watching SportsCenter, and they would talk about the importance of a North Carolina guy taking the North Carolina job. 
why why do you think that's so important? And and you know, go ahead. I'll, I'll stop talking. I'll shut up now. Yeah, no, I, Aaron. I think that's a great question because, um, and and I remember reading an article about this recently. Um, it's important if you have good options, right? Like, don't force it. If you don't have a great coaching candidate, don't hire somebody just because they played on the team, right? I think it's important because you want to bring the community together. Sure. You know, former players, alumni, fans, you want to unify them. So they like to have one of their own. Um, and then I think it's also important because a person who played there or coached there knows what they're selling. Sure. They know, they know the product inside out, as opposed to someone coming from the outside and not really knowing how special North Carolina basketball is to differentiate it from the comp the competitors. Makes perfect Ideally. sense. Yeah, no, it makes – now that I'm thinking about it, I very random example, but when Harbaugh was hired at Michigan, I remember I, I used to work with Dave Wanstead, the former NFL coach who also coached at Pitt, which was his alma mater, and he said point blank, I could go into kids' homes and say, I was you once. I know what this school did for me and my family and all that stuff, so it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, very briefly, you know, you did spend three years there as the head coach, started out really well, make the NCAA tournament. Uh, as you said, it, a, a rebuild was coming. It happens in your second year. Uh, you know, you bring in a really good recruiting class towards the end of the second year, but obviously didn't get a chance to, to see it all the way through. I mean, you could take it wherever you want, but uh, I do want to ask you about your time as the head coach there, but then it also leads to, I think, largely uh, the last couple years of your life writing this book, why you wrote it, the lessons you learned, all that stuff. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I think that... As a coach, as a CEO, um, as you move up, uh, a friend of mine, Dr. Jerry Bell, who's been a great executive coach for me, as you move up the success pyramid, the technology, the, the, the technical ability, the technical knowledge you have of your industry doesn't matter as much. It's more of managing people. Interesting. As you go up. So, you know, you start out as a, an assistant coach, you better know how to uh, recruit and scout. That's the two most important things you do. As you go up and become a head coach, recruiting and scouting is not as important. It's part of it, but you better be able to manage an enterprise and delegate and oversee and, um, and, and then manage up. And so I go from being a head coach for one year to being the head coach at North Carolina. And even though I played there, I didn't understand the managing of the enterprise. Sure. Um, I didn't manage that well. Um, I, 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 you know, again, I go back to, I got the job in June. And uh, I asked a couple of key questions. One, um, can I bring my staff with me? 
because that was important to me. Two, um, will it be my program? Can I run it how I see fit? And three, you know, are you okay with this being a rebuild in year two? You know, we're going to dip. And, and so I needed those answers to be understood. And they all, you know, yes, yes, yes. Well, um, it wasn't okay for me to bring my staff because that offended a lot of former players. And I think it hurt Coach Smith. Really? Yes. Because there were three assistant coaches that I didn't retain. Phil Ford, okay. Dave Hanners, and Pat Sullivan. And then, you know, so running it how I see fit wasn't. Let me jump you know, in. And before people kind of ask why, I think it's as someone who covers college basketball, I know this. But, you know, somebody would say, well, why didn't you just keep the former coach's assistants? It means the three guys you had with you at Notre Dame are out of jobs in June and potentially there are no more openings for them to get another job for the for the following fall. So that is why a coach would make that decision just for people who might not understand that from the, the basketball perspective. You're exactly right, Aaron. And the other thing is this. Those coaches helped me have a successful year at Notre Dame and as a result, helped me get this opportunity. And the one thing I learned at North Carolina was loyalty. Yeah. Now, I write this in the book. I said, there's loyalty and there's blind loyalty. I was blindly loyal. And I almost was, almost to a point of, and, and by the way, I said, if I can't bring the staff with me, that's okay, I'll stay at Notre Dame. Mm. Now, but I asked that of the athletic director. I didn't ask that of Coach Smith. Okay. That was a mistake. However, we should have figured out a way to make it happen where I can bring my staff with me and retain the previous staff. Sure. Maybe my staff comes but doesn't have the same role, but they're not left without a job. Sure. And then the previous staff is retained. And then everyone's happy. Yep. Maybe my staff's not happy, but I say, all right, listen, you don't have to take the job, but I'm not leaving you out in the cold. And hopefully if we have success, someone gets a head coaching job, then you move up. But politically by eliminating or not retaining the previous staff, that really was probably the undoing of my tenure, unless I had unconditional success, unless I had just success where nobody could question it. Um, but that, that really was difficult for a lot of people to manage. And um, I look back and say, I should have handled that differently. Another thing in leadership, and I explain this in the book, Rebound, um, which is available on Amazon, by the way, you can pre-order it now. It uh, is managing up. You know, managing up, and 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 there's there's a flow chart. There's there's an org chart with solid lines, and then there's an org chart with dotted lines, and there's some org charts with no lines. Well, Coach Smith and Coach Guthridge were up at the top of that org chart, but they weren't formally my bosses, but they were informally my bosses. And managing them, I probably could have done a better, I should have done a better job. I didn't 
because again, I was told it's my program running how you see fit. And I'm scrambling, trying to do all these things, but they had offices in the building and that made it very difficult as it would, you know, maybe it was during the year of UConn grad. I don't know what, you know, did Jim Calhoun have an office when Kevin Ollie took over? Um, you know, John Thompson had an office, you know, when, when, uh, you know, at, at Georgetown. Now, his son was the assistant coach and then Patrick Ewing. Um, but, you know, that's hard. You know, they're, they're still trying to replace John Wooden at UCLA. I live in L.A. I know. Yeah. What is it like, um, you know, as time goes on? I mean, you know, like you said, you knew it was going to be a rebuild. The AD knew it was going to be a rebuild. It doesn't go well. Third year, you are starting to turn the thing around, but there's some internal stuff and it just, it doesn't feel like it's going to work. Uh, you choose to resign or, you know, you end up resigning. I mean, I can't even imagine, you know, what it would be like, but I mean, I know you talk about it in the book. I know you're talking about it in all these interviews. So I know it was a low point. I know it's hard to relive, but if you don't mind, you know, just, just no, take us through. No, well, first of all, uh, you asked earlier why I wrote the book and, and I had the book, you know, I've been, playing with the idea of a book for a long time, but I never, I didn't know if I would write it, but I really was doing it for therapeutic reasons to put sure. things on paper. And then ultimately I was doing um, a lot of corporate speaking before the pandemic and people would ask me, Hey, do you have a book? And I'm like, no, I don't have a book. And they're like, well, you need a book. You need to have a book as a, as a speaker. It gives you credibility. It's something you can leave behind. Um, so I put it together. And what I really uh, think that I have felt through this is I did it for me, as selfish as that sounds, for therapy. I needed to turn a negative into a positive. My negative experience losing my job in a very public manner at my alma mater, dealing with the emotional de demons that, that surface I call them triggers. And in the book, I talk about the bitter river. You know, you're trying to drive over this bridge that has a healthy, hefty toll. There's no guardrails. And someone says something to you, or you watch a game on TV, and, or you see a coach sign a big contract, or Mike Bray's been at Notre Dame 22 years, all-time winning coach at Notre Dame. You know, that could have been me. That could have been me. That could have been me. So all of a sudden I'm driving on the bitter river and I go, yeah. and I go into the water. I, I go into the bitter river because of the trigger. So I need to try to focus and, and not let those triggers get to me. So by releasing this into a, a book, it's been therapeutic. And in a way I'm helping people. If I help one person deal with failure, deal with adversity, um, become a better leader, then this book is a success. Well, and I, th I think it's a perfect segue to really jump into the book. And again, as you said, the book is available on Amazon. You can pre-order it. It's called Rebound from Pain to Passion. And then also, as you said, you're on Twitter, Doherty, Matt. Uh, anybody who follows me can find you pretty quickly through my feed because we'll tag in all this stuff. But you know, I, I think, I know there was never an intention of this, but I think a book like this coming out at this particular moment in time, 
is an important one. I mean, you talked about the inner demons, the mental health elements of all this. And there's a lot of people that are going to listen to this, that are not going to listen to this, that don't know who, a lot of people are going through a lot of stuff right now, a lot of stuff that they could have never envisioned a year ago. I was joking with my wife about this this morning. She said, so she goes, you know, you're not always fun to be around. And I said, I didn't think I was going to be around you 24 hours a day for a year straight. Give me a break here. I'm doing my best. And we got a kick out of it, but it is a crazy time for all of us. And so, you know, I, I feel like a book like this is really important at a moment in time like this. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate it because it is about dealing with adversity. Um, you know, and I, I admit in the book, you know, I've, I've dealt with depression. You know, I, I met with the counselors. I, I, you know, mental health is real, man. I mean, yep. and here we are, you know, as as a, a, a man, a six, seven athlete and coach from New York, you're supposed to be tough guy, right? You're supposed to be able to handle it all. And, you know, there were days I didn't want to get out of bed. There were days that uh, I, I just would be in a daze wondering like, what happened to me? Why? You know, and there was so much as I touched on internal scarring. Um, and I think that uh, I'm finding fulfillment with this book. And I also am an executive coach. So I, I run a Vistage executive coaching practice and I help other CEOs um, avoid the landmines that I stepped on. That's what I try to do. Well, I, really kind of the last question. I mean, if people want to reach out, if somebody hears this, if they, one, they could get the book, but I mean, obviously if you're coaching, you know, you're different kind of coaching, bad, bad pun there, but you know, you're, you've kind of advanced to this next element or this next chapter of your life where you are coaching. I mean, how can people reach out? Obviously we'll, we'll get the information out about the book again, but, but you know, what kind of people are you working with? How, how what, what are you doing that in that regard? Yeah. Thank you, Aaron. Uh, they they can be I can be reached at coachmattdarty.com. Okay. Coachmattdarty.com. And and there's my uh, that's my website. There's a phone number and an email address that they I can be reached at. So I do one-on-one -on -one executive coaching with Vistage. I do a group and that's you know uh, more in the Charlotte area. I do corporate talks. Um, uh, I've enjoyed that a great deal because it's, I feel like I can get in front of a team again, you know, and uh, I do a lot of that on Zoom. I've talked to the Harvard lacrosse team. I'm going to talk to the Michigan lacrosse team. Um, I've talked to different corporations on Zoom. I talked to 100 people yesterday at lunch uh, in, in Charlotte uh, on a Zoom call. Uh, so it, it's, it's very fulfilling. I feel like, uh, you know, after 18 years of dealing with, you know, like, what am I going to do? What's my calling? Where's my place in life? Um, I finally feel some fulfillment and direction. That's fantastic. Again, coach mattdoherty.com. If you want more information, the book, uh, again, rebound from pain to passion, leadership lessons learned. Uh, it's available for pre-order on Amazon will be available March 2nd. Uh, real quick, last one. You got any thoughts on the game on Saturday? I mean, for people, I think if you're listening, if you made it this far, you know, Carolina, Duke, Saturday, both teams coming off a loss. Duke lost on Monday at Miami. Carolina lost on Tuesday at Clemson. 
both teams are starting to some days figured out other days not so much but what do you got yeah i mean i know you're gonna pick but uh you know any any just general thoughts on the game well i think it, it comes down to and this sounds maybe uh uh very very uh simplification but it, it, i think it's true carolina's got to take care of the basketball all right, they got to take care of the basketball and they got to make shots. Now, I think every team has to do that, but especially for North Carolina. They had 10 turnovers in the first half last night against a team that doesn't really pressure. They really sagged off and try to contain. So, uh, and then they're not shooting well from the foul line. They're not shooting well from the three-point line. The concern, the other concern is when I would play against a team like North Carolina, I would try to turn their strength into a weakness and their strength is their size. They play a big lineup. Well, Duke plays a smaller lineup and they start basically Jalen Johnson and Matthew Hurt. Maybe they'll go a little bit bigger because of, um, you know, maybe Mark Williams or somebody like that will play center for them, but they can go five out and, 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 and be athletic and drive it and pass, handle and shoot. And when they, when Carolina has to match up with somebody like that, whether it's the, the four man at Notre Dame or last night against Clemson, their four man, that puts a guy like Brooks in bad position to have to go out and guard the three point line. So Carolina takes care of the basketball and, and wins. They got to punish Duke for being small. I mean, just they can't, last night, they only had two offensive rebounds in the first half. They've got to have 14 offensive rebounds and have less than 15 turnovers to win. So um, with that said, will they win? Who knows? That's why we'll be watching. All right. Coach Matt Doherty, final time. The book is called Rebound, Turning from Pain to Passion, Leadership Lessons Learned. It is available on Amazon. Uh, you can find Coach on Twitter at Doherty, Matt, D-O-H-E-R-T-Y. And as he said, uh, coachmattdoherty.com is where you can find more information. But, Coach, this was fun, man. This was fun. Yeah. Um, I appreciate the time. And uh, maybe we'll do it again. Maybe we'll do it again. I mean, I don't think Duke Carolina is going anywhere in terms of a talking point. So we'll have to do it again soon, all right? Anytime, Aaron. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, everybody. I am back. And I do hope you enjoyed the Matt Doherty stuff. I, I know that it's a little bit different. I know that it's a little bit unique. I know that uh, Coach Doherty you maybe haven't thought about in a couple years since he left college basketball, but I thought it was a really fun interview. One, there was the fun stuff, Michael Jordan, Dean Smith, all that. But I think on top of that, I also was really surprised, intrigued, everything by what he had to say about getting fired and really towards the end of that conversation about mental health and about the fact that, you know, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, but uh, the, the situation where you, a coach gets fired and, and I think we all kind of default to, oh, that guy's getting paid $10 million to not coach anymore. and Oh, life must be so good. And, and I'm guilty of it too. I'm not sitting here trying to say that I'm better than anybody else or I don't crack those same quote unquote jokes and I'm using air quotes. And I think it really hit home with me that, that these guys are human beings too. These guys have been working their whole lives to get to a place where they can have success at the highest level. 
and they failed. They've largely failed, right? Whether it's Matt Doherty at North Carolina, whether it's Will Muschamp at South Carolina, Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee, um, whoever. And I think it really opened my eyes. I think it really made me realize that, that these guys are human beings too. And listen, am I going to make the buyout life joke next year when somebody gets fired and gets paid a lot of money to go away? I'm sure I will. I'm not perfect. I'm not claiming to be perfect. But I thought it was a really, really insightful interview. I really do hope that you guys enjoyed it. Uh, and it was really fun. I had a lot, of, a lot of fun doing it, a lot of fun talking to Coach. All right, really quickly, I do want to get into just what what should be a really fun weekend across sports, not just in college basketball, but obviously, not sure if you heard, pretty big game called the Super Bowl on Sunday. So let's talk a little bit about Saturday slate in college basketball because there are a lot of really big games. Obviously, Duke Carolina is the headliner, Tennessee, Kentucky. Let's start with with one game that that has caught my eye, a a secretly very important game, and that's Alabama at Missouri. We just talked about Missouri taking care of Kentucky, but what's interesting about this one is, Alabama, if they win this game, they will improve to 11-0 in SEC play, and they will have a four-game lead on the rest of the conference with seven games to go. I know Alabama fans don't want to hear about rat poison, but you're talking about a four-game lead with seven games to go. They would basically have to completely fall apart, and somebody else would have to get completely hot for Alabama to not win the SEC championship. So Alabama wins that game. They're just getting one step closer to competing for and winning the SEC regular season title. Obviously, Missouri, look, they're putting together an impressive tournament resume. I would lean Alabama in that game, but man... What a fun game that's going to be to lead off the day. Later in the day, we got Kansas-West Virginia, intrigued by that one. Florida at LSU. You talk about two teams that need to get right after LSU got stomped by Alabama after Florida lost to South Carolina. That will be an intriguing one. And then let's get into kind of the meat of the day, right? Uh, Also, by the way, I should mention Wisconsin and Illinois top 20 matchup. I I don't know how you can't like Illinois in that one coming off the big wins at Iowa a few or against, excuse me, at Indiana the other day and Iowa the game before that. But let's get into some of the big ones. The first one, of course, being Duke Carolina. And I don't think either team's very good. But I do think it's intriguing from the perspective that both teams actually, frankly, need this win. North Carolina, as I mentioned on on Monday, on I guess it was Tuesday's episode, you look at their resume. They have the better win-loss record than Duke, but they're sitting at 11 and 6, 6 and 4 overall in the ACC. All 6 of those wins have come against the bottom half of the league. They still have not played not only Duke, but they haven't played Virginia, they haven't played Louisville, they haven't played Virginia Tech. And they still have a second game with Florida State on top of two games with Duke. And uh, also, I should mention Syracuse at Syracuse as well. So North Carolina needs this game, and we know Duke needs this game. 7-6, and 5-4 and four overall. Listen, I'm not going to lie. I- I'll lean North Carolina. I don't feel great about it. Duke being at home means absolutely nothing this year. Duke is a complete mess. I do think North Carolina is the more complete team. I think North Carolina controls the boards. Lean North Carolina in that one. But... I think anybody betting that one can't feel good. Speaking of can't feel good about betting a game, how about Tennessee at Kentucky in the 8 o'clock Eastern time window? Oh, yeah. Two teams, both of which I I know we're talking about Kentucky a lot, but Tennessee needs to get right, too. They're 5-4 and in the SEC right now. And how about this? If Kentucky wins this game, Kentucky at 6-11 and overall would be tied with Tennessee in the league standings. And I think both teams just just need this game to get right for any semblance of having uh, 
anything to play for down the stretch. I mean, Kentucky, it's all about pride at this point. But even Tennessee, you're talking about a team, if they lose this game, they are now 12-5, and 5-5 five, five and five overall in the SEC. And it's not as though their schedule is super easy down the stretch. They play at Auburn, at LSU, Florida at home, a team that in Florida, by the way, that they lost to. And if you lose to Kentucky and Ole Miss in back-to-back games, that means you can lose to anybody. From Kentucky's perspective, look, I think obviously the most interesting thing is is Terrence Clark on the court, right? We talked about it before the break, before the Matt Doherty interview. Does Matt, uh, Terrence Clark play in this game? But I'll tell you this. I cannot bet Kentucky because uh, the one time I bet Kentucky, by the way, was the game against LSU where they smoked them. But I just don't think you know what you're going to get from Kentucky night tonight. I do think them being at home matters. But I don't know how you can't take Tennessee in this one with all those veterans on that roster. Last college basketball game. If you want to know how irrelevant the Pac-12 is, what I want you to do is keep your TV on ESPN after that Kentucky game and stay up for USC-UCLA. UCLA comes into this game 13-3 overall, 9-1 in the Pac-12 in first place. USC comes in 14-3, 8-2 in the Pac-12, in second place in the Pac-12. And nobody knows about either of these teams or cares about either of these teams outside of UCLA alums and USC alums. I'm telling you right now, these are the two best teams in college basketball that nobody is talking about. Both are absolutely capable of making a run. And when it comes to USC, they might have the number two pick in the draft in Evan Mobley. And nobody is talking about this. And I think it is a direct reflection on how bad the leadership is in the Pac-12, how nobody cares. You can make fun of Bill Walton, but I'm telling you, he is the single greatest mouthpiece that that conference has. But stay up and watch this game because these are two really good teams. I actually lean USC in this one. I think their length is going to give UCLA problems. But I just, I'm amazed that nobody is talking about this game, how big this game is, how much it matters. Finally, 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 finally. Last game I want to talk about. How about the Super Bowl? Kansas City, Tampa Bay, Patrick Mahomes, Tom Brady. And look, I know you guys think of me as a college sports guy, but listen, I host a national radio show, Fox Sports Radio. We talk NFL every single week. And so I watch the games. And I'm just going to tell you, I'm taking KC. I know, crazy hot take. Defending Super Bowl champ, maybe the single most skilled quarterback ever. Hot take, Torres, coming through. Kansas City. What I'll tell you is I've never seen a team like Kansas City from this perspective. Um, You look at them. They are the one team, and I actually talked about it weirdly a few days ago when it came to Tennessee basketball. They're maybe the only team that I've seen that they seem to play better when they get behind and when they have a little bit of adversity. And I thought there was no better example of that than the AFC Championship game. They fall down 9-0 to the Buffalo Bills, rip off essentially a 38-6 run over the next two quarters, and end up crushing Buffalo, whatever the final score was, 38-24 or whatever. But you know the game wasn't that close. What's amazing to me about Kansas City is they're not phased by anything. And they basically, here's the other crazy part, they basically spent the second half of the season toying with people, okay? They lost one game the entire second half, and that was against the Chargers when they rested all their starters. But on top of that, from November 1st on until the AFC Championship game, which was a span of nine games, every game was a one-possession game. They beat the Raiders by two. They beat the Bucks by three. They beat the Broncos by six. They beat the Dolphins by five. They beat the Saints by three. They beat the Falcons by three. They beat the Browns in the playoffs by five. 
This is a team that was living life dangerously and every time it got close, made a play to win the game. And I just don't think Sunday's any different. Listen, I'm the idiot that bet against Tom Brady in the NFC Championship game, so maybe I'm the fool here. But I also go back to that NFC Championship game and I actually did talk about it a little bit on this show. First of all, Tom Brady did have three interceptions in that game. That is worth noting. And I just thought Aaron Rodgers and Matt LaFleur, the combination wasn't very good down the stretch. Everybody talked about Matt LaFleur uh, kicking the field goal instead of going for the touchdown, and I think they're right in, in questioning that. But Aaron Rodgers also had that running lane to run in for a touchdown, and there were a few plays early in the game where Aaron Rodgers and the Packers offense had a chance to put up points and just didn't come through. It wasn't anything Tampa Bay did great. Uh, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers defense kind of screwed up. So I do like KC. My final score official pick is 31-27. I know KC's two starting offensive linemen are out. I don't know that it matters. Patrick Mahomes throws so well on the run, uh, so well under pressure. I think they end up winning the game, and Kansas City is your Super Bowl champ. All right. That is it for today's Aerotora Sports Podcast. I want to thank you guys for listening and subscribing to the show. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to do so. iTunes, the podcast, Addict App, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars. really does help us move up those iTunes charts. Uh, make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter at Aaron Torres Podcast, uh, Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Make sure you're following the YouTube channel exclusive content there. If you love college football, I'm doing a lot of off-season college football stuff there. But that is all for today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. And uh, enjoy the Super Bowl. I will be back after the Super Bowl on Sunday. I'll be back on Monday. And I hope you guys have a great weekend. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.